Father, I thank you so much for the good reports that we get, and certainly each week we could take a significant amount of time and talk about what it is that you're doing among us. And Lord, I just praise you for the faithfulness you've shown. And Lord, I pray that you would not only stir our hearts to give sacrificially for the kingdom work among the nations, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to live sacrificially for the kingdom work among the nations. I praise you for these 25 students who in a setting among their peers at a public school willingly said out loud that they desire to commit their life to Jesus Christ. Praise you for what you're doing. Lord, allow us to see that kind of work and not just the darkness of the headlines that we read. Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with the family in a special way of Billy Graham. And Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness in him. Lord, we're grateful to have heard his message, the one and only message that has been once and for all delivered to the people of this earth, and that is that Jesus saves and only Jesus saves. God, thank you for your work. Thank you for a reminder of your power that has been poured out in in and through his life. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to fix our eyes on the harvest that is ready to be that is ready to be reaped, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray for for Brad and Barry, God, that you would encourage them today and may the people of God that gathers that local church be filled to know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus. God, I pray not only would they gather for the celebration of the gospel, I pray they would scatter for the demonstration and declaration of that gospel. Lord, teach us your word today, and we ask it all in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're gonna continue our study here in the book of of 1 Peter, and let me give you a bit of a synopsis of what we've seen so far. Here's Here's one of the first things we've seen in this study of 1 Peter. Life is hard. Can I get a witness on that one. Yeah, life is hard. Suffering's a part of life. As a matter of fact, suffering is such a part of life that even being a follower of Jesus doesn't exempt you from the pain and difficulty of life on this earth. As a matter of fact, there are times where life gets harder precisely because you're living more and more like Jesus. That's, that's what he's saying to these people that he's writing this letter to. Their, their lives are falling apart in some way. They're losing their jobs, their spouse houses are, are turning their back on them. They're living in communities that don't want anything to do with them. Their lives are harder as a result of them naming the name of Christ. And not only is life hard, we've also seen that God calls us to live with joy in the midst of the sufferings of our life. Now, at first glance, as I read that, I would feel like that's almost cruel, that you would write a letter to people who are suffering some of the hardest things they have ever gone through, and you would write a letter called calling them to live with joy in the midst of our pain. And it would be almost cruel, except for the fact that right out of the beginning of this letter, God includes reasons we have as God's people to rejoice no matter what. We have reasons to live with joy no matter how dark this world is and no matter how deep the pain is of our life. And some of the things we've seen to this point that give us reason to rejoice is that our world and our pain are both temporary. This is a temporary 
temporary setup. Our pain will pass. As followers of Christ, we have an eternal inheritance that's marked by the pleasure and the, the, the power and the glory of God, and it's just around the corner that we will enter into the presence of Almighty God. We've also seen that God has mercy for us, and He will shower His pleasure upon us in Jesus Christ. And so the summary of what we've studied to this point is really this. You can have joy in the midst of your pain when you consider what God gives to us through Jesus. You can have joy in the midst of your pain when you consider what God gives to us through Jesus. And this morning's text is really just an extension of that teaching. So let's pick up where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. Verse 10 says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." This is the word of God for us today. Now, here's the deal. We read that passage of scripture. I've read it quite a few times this week, and it would be easy for us to get lost in some of the details of what we just read, but don't get lost in the details. I want you to just notice very generally what Peter is doing in these verses. What Peter is doing is he's saying basically this, our salvation by grace through Jesus is amazing. Our salvation by grace through Jesus is amazing and we'll see in just a moment the implication of that is that if you've been saved by grace through Jesus, you should be amazed, Amen. right? You guys, does that make sense? Okay, now let me show you this from the word of God. Here's why I say our salvation by grace through Jesus. That's how Peter says it. Look at verse 10. He starts by saying, concerning this salvation. The Bible is clear that we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We have all put ourselves in peril. Here's the deal, guys. The Bible is very, very clear that all of us have sinned. Our sin is a rebellion against God. God has said in his word how life works best. And instead of going God's way, every person who has ever lived but Jesus has chosen to turn their back on God's way and go their own way. They've broken the design of God. And, and that sin, that rebellion comes with consequences. Consequences. We live now with the consequences of our own sin. If we're not careful, we won't realize that when we hear a word like saved or rescued, that we, we are in peril and need to be rescued from the consequences of our sin. There are at least three ways, and I'm not going to go down this road very long, but there are three ways the Bible tells us that we need to be saved from our sin. You guys can write this down if you want to somewhere. The Bible teaches that we need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. The penalty of our sin is is the condemnation of God, that we would live forever an eternal death in a place 
the Bible calls hell. That the the punishment or the penalty of our sin is a second death. A death that is not just for our bodies, it's for our souls that we would exist forever enduring the punishment of God for our sin. And we need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. We also need to be saved from the power of our sin. The Bible is equally clear that none of us are able to save ourselves from the pattern of our, our own sin. So some of you came here this morning because there are patterns of brokenness in your life, in your home, that you realize you can't fix on your own. You've tried a million different ways, and you realize this, I can't fix me. I'm broken. I cannot get out of doing the things I don't want to do. That's an indication that we need to be rescued from the power of our own sin. So the Bible says you need to be saved or rescued from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, and ultimately we need to be saved from the very presence of sin. Here's a bit of news for us. You and I were not made to live in a broken mess of a world, and we live in a broken mess of a world. Isn't that right? You look at the headlines, and it is just brokenness everywhere. It is darker and darker. Every time I read the news, I see these headlines that share with me that we live in a dark and broken world and something in us realizes I was made for more than this. Well, we need to be saved from it. We need to be rescued from the very presence of sin in this broken mess of a world. And so those three ways the Bible says we all, as a result of our sin, need to be saved. We need to be rescued from the penalty of sin sin, from the power of sin, and very much from the presence of sin. And the good news of the Bible is that God has made a way for us to be rescued. That's what Peter's referring to when he says this salvation, the rescue plan of God that saves us every way we need to be saved. And that salvation, he says, comes through grace. That's the continuation there in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about, and notice how he describes our salvation, about the grace that was to be yours. The word grace means undeserved favor. It's when you get something you don't deserve to have, or when something good happens to you that you don't deserve to happen to you. It's what happened when Emily consented to marry me. It's called grace, something that I don't deserve. I mean, just look at her and look at me. That's grace, people. God has infinitely bestowed grace on us. He's made a way for us to be rescued every way we need to be rescued from the penalty, power, and presence of our sin. And it's not by buying it, earning it, or deserving it. It's by grace. God freely gives salvation to those who will call on his name. And how is it, how is it that God gives us grace? He provides for our salvation free to us at great cost to himself. And how does it flow to us? It flows through Jesus. That's why Peter, when he talks about our salvation being grace that would be ours, he immediately moves into verse 11 and he starts talking about a person. He's not just saying some, some, some place that you need to go or some thing that you need to do that gives you grace in order to be saved. He talks about a person who does something on our behalf. Look at verse 10, the end of verse 10 and and see how this flows into verse 11. The prophets, that's the second half of verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully 
So they wanted to know more and more about this salvation that came by grace. They had enough information to know it was coming. God was going to rescue people and he was going to do it through grace. And they began to look more and more to figure it out in a sense. In verse 11, when they sought to figure it out, to look at the details, verse 11 says, they inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Notice this, when he talks about our salvation, coming but by grace to us he immediately moves into a person do you know why that is because grace comes to us for our salvation through a person and do you know that person's name it's Jesus it's Jesus we are saved by Jesus. Our salvation comes through a savior. Our rescue comes through a rescuer. We are saved by Jesus, and I am not ashamed at all to tell you there is no other way. John 14:6, Jesus talking to us and the rest of this world says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by where you must be saved, but the name of Jesus. Salvation comes by grace through Jesus and Jesus alone. There's only one way to be saved and rescued, and it's by grace through faith in Jesus Buddha will not save you. Muhammad will not save you. Joseph Smith will not save you. And you sure as well will not save yourself. Jesus and Jesus alone. And what happened, we read here then in verses 10 and 11, is that the prophets of old had enough truth to know that God was going to be able to rescue through a rescuer who would save us from the penalty power and presence of our sin. They knew that that rescuer was going to suffer and that through his suffering, it would, then, it, would, it would result in subsequent glory, verse 11. And the prophets found that to be amazing. They were amazed by that, that God would save by grace through a rescuer every person that would ever be saved. And the prophets were amazed by it, but they didn't see it clearly. They lived before those prophecies were fulfilled. And so while they wrote and they were given truth about the prophecies that the the rescuer would suffer and enter into glory, They didn't know all the details. So I I deliberated all week. How many of these do I share with you? And so I came up with the fact that we would have time for me to give you the grand total of one. So go to Genesis chapter three and verse 15. I'm just gonna show you the first one. So the Old Testament is filled with prophecies and the prophecies came through prophets. God stirred them in writing down Details about how he would rescue his people. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first of many, many prophecies of the Old Testament. And here we find the Garden of Eden 
Adam and Eve have just turned their backs on God. They've rebelled. Their rebellion and sin has brought a curse on this world. Everything has changed, but God doesn't leave them hopeless under a curse. He comes to them, and he comes to them promising that there would be someone who would come, who would break the curse, who would reverse the curse of their own sin. And while there were many details that had yet to be revealed, we find that what Peter describes in in, in verse 11 is exactly what's included in the very first first of many prophecies, suffering and subsequent glory. Let me show you this here. Genesis 3, look at verse 15. He's promising here and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking about the enemy of God, Satan, the one who introduced temptation to this earth and tempted men to fall. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He's saying there's one day, one day someone is gonna be born to the line of Eve, to this woman who has who has fallen. Someday a a human will be born is what he's saying here. And what will that human do? He's, He's speaking again to the enemy, to Satan. And God says, he shall bruise your head. He'll crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see it there? The suffering? What part's the suffering of, of the rescuer? You shall bruise his heel. There would be a time when the offspring of the woman who would, would come and in his rescue effort to save people in every way they need to be saved, his heel would be bruised. When, when, when was the rescuer's heel bruised? On the cross, right? He suffered. But then it's not just suffering. Verse 11 of 1 Peter 1 says it's also subsequent glory. What's the, what's the subsequent glory that came when Jesus had his heel bruised? What's right there? He will bruise your head. He will beat and defeat the enemy of Almighty God. The suffering of Jesus happened, but in it, it it caused the enemy of God to be defeated. That's suffering and subsequent glory. And what Peter says is that Moses, 1,500 years before Jesus was born, writes this down and he says, oh man, he's gonna rescue us. And he's going to save us, and it's going to be through a person. A person will someday come, and he's going to suffer. His heel's going to get bruised, but it's going to be glorious because the devil's going to be crushed in the process. This is glorious. And then he sought diligently to see it more clearly. It's like the Old Testament prophets were looking through a glass that was hazy with a fog, and they kept trying to wipe away the fog. They saw just enough to understand the basic of it, but they couldn't see the details, so they wondered, who will it be? What's his name? When will he come? Will it be with my children or my grandchildren? They sought diligently to learn who the rescuer would be and when it was that he came. And as they did that, they were amazed that God in his grace would save people in their sin through a savior, even though they didn't know Pretty important details like who he was and when he would come. And so you can sense really quickly what Peter's doing. He's saying, listen, even though they had imperfect knowledge of the gospel, they heard the good news that God would save people and it amazed them. And do you see what he's doing here? If it amazed people who didn't understand it in fullness, how much more should it amaze us who do? 
That's what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, you have more knowledge than the prophets had when they wrote these prophecies from which the authors of the New Testament are teaching about Christ. He says, you know it. Let me just give you a pop quiz. You guys ready for a pop quiz? Of course not. That's what makes it a pop quiz. Let me give it to you. Who is the rescuer? What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. When did he come? 2,000 years ago. We set aside a time every year to celebrate the birth of Jesus the Christ. We spend billions of dollars in a so-called celebration of Jesus. We decorate our homes. We sing songs about it. We have details that the prophets long to have. And even though they didn't have those details, they were still amazed. And what Peter is saying is if those prophets who didn't know the fullness of truth were amazed by the grace of God for us in Jesus, how much more should we be amazed who know him, who've seen him? And so the question for us is not just who is this Christ and when did he come? The question for us in a room like this is are you amazed by it? Is the gospel good news or old news for you? Because that's the key to joy. That's what Peter is writing here to people who are suffering. He is saying the key to joy is that you would be amazed by Jesus. Do you guys know that? That when you're amazed by something, it brings you joy. Do you guys know that? Uh, let me give you a couple examples. I'm not talking about the bad kind of joy. You know there's or the bad kind of amazement. You know there's a bad kind of amazement? Let me give you an example of what I mean. I am amazed at how long the stoplight is on Magnolia and Courtney out here. Just amazed by it. I, I, I can literally feel the vehicle I'm in depreciating while I wait at the stoplight. I mean, it's just amazing. Forever long. That's how long the stoplight is. Uh, Courtney and Magnolia. That, that's a bad kind of amazement that doesn't bring you joy. I'm also amazed at how terrible customer service can be when you call the national number for your local bank. I'm just saying, I'm not naming any bank's names, I'm just saying amazing, uh, amazing there. That's not the good kind of amazing. I'm talking about the good kind of amazing. Let me tell you about a good kind of amazing. Maybe you had this. I don't know if you did. I've had this. When I stood in a hospital room holding my newborn babies in my arms and looking at them and thinking this. One year ago, you didn't exist. And here you are. It's amazing. And you know what I do? In that moment, what I did? Smiled. I smiled. It brought me joy. I was amazed. And that encounter with something amazing brought me joy because joy and delight come to us. They well up within us when we are amazed at good and amazing things. And let me tell you something, people, whether you realize it or not, there's nothing better or more amazing than Jesus. Hallelujah. And so the key to joy welling up in us, having our hearts even in the midst of suffering to live with joy that is inexpressible is that we would be amazed by Jesus. The prophets were amazed by Jesus because he would bring salvation by grace to his people. 
And someone might say, I was thinking this as we studied this. I was thinking, well, what if somebody says, okay, well, well, how do we know the prophets would have been amazed after they got the details? Like, what if they were just, they were intrigued by a mystery? Maybe they, maybe they would have been so amazed after the mystery was solved. It's kind of like what I do each year. On vacation, uh, almost every year in vacation, uh, my family and I go to, to, to uh, uh, North Carolina. I almost didn't even know what state it's in. We just call it the Turnerosa. I went to North Carolina, and we, we, I lay out a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle on the table, and I put that puzzle together. And I don't know how you do it. Um, um, here's how I do it. I get all four corner pieces first, all right? So kids, listen up. Here's how you solve a puzzle. All four corner pieces at first, then you sort through it to find any piece that has a, a, a flat edge. You want those edge pieces. You lay those all out. You get the edge sorted out. Then what you want to do is you want to look at the box top. This is important. And you're going to want to look at something you can kind of figure out that's really obvious. And you you get all those pieces out and you put those together. I get kind of compulsive. You can tell I'm excited about this jigsaw puzzle, right? This is kind of who I am. So I I, I solve this puzzle. I work on it throughout the the, the week. And, And then when I put that final piece in, which Lord help us if that final piece isn't there, right? Oh, put that final piece in. I, I basically do this. I stand up. I look at it. I raise my arms. I congratulate me. Um, and then I tear it all apart and put it back in the box. And I never do it again. I never do the same puzzle twice. I already did that one. It's not as interesting as it was. And some of us might say, okay, so what if Peter is actually talking about that? I mean, what if the prophets were intrigued because they didn't know the details? I mean, how do we know they wouldn't have gotten over their amazement once they found out the mystery was solved? Well, Peter introduces another group of people. Look at what he says at the end of verse 12. Verse 12 says this, it was revealed to them that they, were not, that they were serving not themselves but you, that those details were for us who would come later. And the things that, they have now been, that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at this last phrase. I love this phrase. Things into which angels long to look. Isn't that a great phrase? Things into which angels long to look. It's not just the prophets who are amazed by the grace of God for us in Jesus. It's the angels. It's the angels. And the angels have had a front row seat from the very beginning. They sang with joy at creation, the book of Job says. So from the very beginning, they've had a front row seat and they still long to look into it. That word long is a word that means strong desire for something. And I used to think they, they had a strong desire for something precisely because they couldn't have it. I thought, man, those, those angels must be sitting around and they must be looking down because we're unique in all creation, and they must be thinking, man, I wish I knew what it was like to be Titus. I mean, what's it like not to be able to run a mile? What's it like to eat that much ice cream? I mean, I'm sure they're, that's not what they're doing, all right? That's not what I believe Peter is talking about. He's not saying that they long or they desire it because they can't see it or because they don't understand it. I believe it's the exact opposite. I believe what Peter is saying is that angels have a strong desire to see God's grace in Jesus, not because they cannot see it, but because they they actually can. Not because they don't understand it, but because they actually do. You see, angels were created to worship God. 
They were created to encounter his glory and to worship him. So for all of the roles that angels fulfill in the Bible, the one that's most important and the one that's most enduring is the role of worshipers around the throne of God. And I just want to warn you folks, don't let Michael Landon or Roma Downey cloud your idea of what it means to be an angel, okay? They are not deceased humans who are trying to earn their wings every time a bell rings, okay? Great movie, terrible theology, all right? And no matter how much Amy Fuller and Colleen may think so, their dogs are not angels. That just doesn't work that way. Uh, Anyhow, so that's that's a tangent. Angels are created beings whose primary task is to respond to God's glory with worship and praise to his name. They see his glory and they praise him. They love him. They love to worship him. So they witness God and his power in creation and they worship him. They witness God and his perfection in his presence and they worship him. They witness God and his justice at the condemnation of Satan and they worship him. But the Bible only uses this phrase in this verse to describe what they long to see, what they desire strongly, and it's God's grace to people through Jesus. The Bible tells us that the angels who love God's glory long to see where it's displayed most clearly because the glory of God is most clearly displayed through His grace to us in Jesus It's one of the reasons why the Bible says in Luke chapter 15 verse 10 that there is rejoicing in heaven among the angels at every moment a sinner repents and turns to Christ because grace is displayed there. And because they see it, it causes them to want to see it more because it's so beautiful, they want to behold it all the time. Because they understand it, they long for it more because truly amazing things do that to us. Truly amazing things make us want more of them, not less of them. It's true about all kinds of things. Let me give you some examples. It's true about our favorite foods. Let me just tell you about this. The very first time I ate my favorite food, which is a Ruth's Chris steak, I did not say, oh man, that is so good. I hope I never have it again. I didn't do that. Tasting it and experience it made me want it more. As a matter of fact, if you have a Ruth's Chris steak and you don't absolutely want to eat more and more of it, I want to urge you, go to the emergency room immediately. You have a medical condition, and I don't know what it is, but something's bad wrong. Okay, so our favorite foods do that. Our favorite songs do that. If you've been here any amount of time, you know, I I love the soundtrack to Les Mis. Um, And just because I've heard it 10,000 times doesn't mean that I don't want to hear it again. As a matter of fact, my favorite place to hear it is coming out of my own mouth. And so you'll hear me every now and then, alone I wait in the shadows, I count the hours till I can sleep. I dreamed a dream cause that stood by, it made her weep to know I die. I'm just just saying, that's an opportunity for me to sing. No, you don't need to applause, but you can if you want to. If you feel like I deserved it, but I'm just saying, you don't need to do that. Our favorite songs don't make us want to never hear them again. 
Our favorite foods don't make us never want to eat them again. Our favorite movies, I've seen my favorite movies dozens of times, and you hear me quote lines like this, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Or when I'm in a staff meeting and things aren't going well, I may say to one of our pastors, I'm your huckleberry. Or when I think about problems that we have here, I might say something like, get busy living or get busy dying. I'm just saying, these are favorite lines from movies. I don't stop watching them because I've seen them before. My appreciation for how great they are makes me want to see them again, sing them again, eat it again. And it's most true about our favorite people. When Emily and I fell in love, we went from seeing each other never to seeing each other every single day and then complaining that it wasn't enough. Saying goodbye at the end of the day was the toughest thing that we had to do. And, and, and loving her made me want to see her more, not less. Even now, I, I don't like to travel because Emily and my kids are my favorite people on this earth. And because they're my favorite people, I want to see them. I want to be with them and seeing them and knowing them makes me want to see them more. And, and the same thing is true on an infinitely greater scale with Jesus. The angels long to see him in his redemptive work. They long to see him more and more. They are amazed and it brings them joy in his presence when his grace is poured out on sinners like us. So if you want to live with a joy that's un- unshakable no matter what's going on in your life, then you need to be amazed by Jesus. And if you want to be amazed by Jesus, you've got to look at him. If you want to, if you want to see Jesus, you need to look where Jesus is most clearly seen in the Bible. Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and they are that which bear witness concerning me. The Bible's a book about Jesus. So if you want to see Jesus, you need to look where he is. You know, there's over a thousand times in the Bible that we are commanded to look, to fix our attention on Jesus Um, Because God knows this, we will not be amazed at something that we've not seen for ourselves. Let let me give you, can I give you some confession? Are you guys good with some confession? You okay showing up and the pastor starts confessing to you? Okay, this could get ugly. Let's see how this goes. I want to confess something to you. I am not personally amazed by the Eiffel Tower. I'm not. Um, because I've never seen it with my own eyes. How do I know it even exists? What if it's a conspiracy theorist? What if Russian spies put it out on the internet? I don't know. I've never been there. I'm not amazed by the Eiffel Tower. What's so great about it? I'll tell you what I'm more amazed with. I'm amazed at the 520 bridge. Every time I go over that bridge, I wonder, how's this thing still standing? It's still here. I've seen it with my own eyes multiple times every week. I put my car on the top of it. I'm amazed by the 520 bridge. You can have your Eiffel Tower. I'm not just amazed by the 520 bridge. I want you to know, I'm actually not amazed by the Grand Canyon. I've never seen it, not with my own eyes. I've seen some postcards. I'll tell you what I'm more amazed with. I'm amazed at the Indian River. Man, the Indian River's where it's at. I have seen the sun set over the Indian River. I have gone kayaking with him and my kids. We've been out there, and manatees have come right up to the kayaks. Manatees. They're amazing. 
There's sea cows. Cows in the sea. It's amazing. I have never seen a, a sea cow in the Grand Canyon. I mean, I, I, in any day now, I just anticipate all of the world finding out that the Grand Canyon is no big deal, but they need to plan their vacation to Cocoa Riverfront so they can stand there and look at the Indian River. I mean, this is where it's at, people. I've never seen the Eiffel Tower. I don't find it amazing. I've never seen the Grand Canyon. Who knows if it's even really there? I'm telling you, 520 Bridge and, and Indian River, that's where it's at, people. I'm amazed. Why? Because I've seen it with my own eyes. And guys, here's the deal. Too many of us lack amazement for Jesus. We have supposedly met him, but gotten over him way too soon. And you know what that's an indicator of? Not that there's something wrong with Jesus. There's something wrong with us. Many of us have been depending on what someone else has seen about Jesus to be amazed by him. We don't read the Bible for ourselves. We show up to hear what somebody else saw in the Bible. We read a book about what somebody else saw in the Bible. We get on a blog about what somebody else saw in the Bible. And it's no wonder we're not amazed with Jesus. We're not looking at Jesus in our own lives. And the reality is Jesus is amazing. And when you encounter him, you become amazed by him. And when you're amazed by Jesus, you have reason to rejoice no matter what. So my prayer for every single one of you is that you would leave this place amazed by Jesus. Think of his grace. He loves you. He gave his life for you. He was buried and rose again so that not only would he give his life for you, he would live his life through you. And every man, woman, and child who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved in every way they need to be saved from the penalty power and one day the very presence of sin itself. And you can't earn it. You never would be able to. It's a free gift of God called grace. It's amazing. And if you have never come to the place of acknowledging Jesus as your Savior, if you've you've never come to the place of being amazed that in your own brokenness Christ has offered a way for you to be saved, I pray that today is your day. Do not leave this place without calling on Jesus to save you. Be amazed by His grace. And if you feel that your amazement is beginning to wane, that you're more amazed that the American curling team won the gold medal than you are, and that is pretty amazing, by the way, but if you're more amazed about that, then you're amazed that Jesus loves you and gave his life for you, I'm going to ask that you would pray today that the Holy Spirit would show you Jesus in his word and stir your heart to be amazed today because you will not live with joy if you do not sit amazed in the presence of Jesus. At the close of our service, our pastors will be down front and we would love to pray with you about any spiritual need you might have. But I want to encourage everyone in this room, everyone in this room, If you do not know Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior, do not leave this place without coming and speaking with one of our pastors. 
We would love to to show you more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ and to help you begin that journey of faith. And for all the rest of you, I want to encourage those that say, I'm trusting in Jesus, but I want to live with deeper amazement. Would you recommit to look for him this week? To go to God's word where Jesus is most clearly seen and commit to look for him this week. Read your Bibles and ask, what does this tell me about Jesus? And pray the Holy Spirit would stir you to be amazed at who you find there. Let's bow our heads. And would you right now just pray that God would stir your hearts to be amazed at God's grace that's given to you by Jesus. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, right now where you are, I want to encourage you, would you confess, acknowledge that you're broken and you can't fix yourself. You're lost and you can't find the way. You can't break or save yourself from the patterns of your own sin. Would you acknowledge that and acknowledge that Jesus is God the Father's provision for you to be saved every way you need to be saved from the penalty, power, and presence of your sin. And right where you are, would you call on Jesus to save you? Ask him to stir your heart to believe him, that he lived the life you couldn't live, a perfect life, and he died the death you should have died as a payment for your sin, and he was buried and rose again three days later, So that if you would trust in him, he would give you that resurrection power to brand new life. Call on Jesus to save you. And for those of you that would say, I'm trusting in Jesus, but I have to confess, I do not live in amazement. I don't wake up in the morning like a prophet diligently seeking to know Christ more from his word. Would you pray that God would stir you? That you would recommit to seeking the face of Christ through the Bible? Would you spend time this week maybe reading through First Peter and asking, what does this teach me about Jesus? And praising him as you see what you find. Lord, we need you and we love you because you first loved us. And your love was demonstrated to us and for us by giving us Jesus. Lord, we praise you and ask that those places of our hearts that genuinely are more amazed at so many other things, the distractions of our world and the things of our own life, God, would you stir us to seek Christ's face in your word, to seek to live in amazement over Jesus and who he is. God, I pray that, that Father, through this week, that, that we as your people would trust in your grace and your power and experience your salvation and be amazed. So God, be glorified in us as we respond to your grace. Be glorified in us as we worship you and your power and your goodness in giving us Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would all go from this place absolutely struck with awe and wonder as we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. And may we live with inexpressible joy as we see a Savior who is absolutely amazing in His grace. Lord, we love you and praise you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.